tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Amanda Arrington. Amanda is the director of the Pets for Life program at the Humane Society of the United States and previously served as the North Carolina State Director for the HSUS Lobbying for Humane State Legislation. In her current role, Amanda leads initiatives that increase access to critical pet wellness care services and information for people and pets living in underserved communities. Amanda is also the founder and executive director of the Coalition to Unchained Dogs, a group based in Durham, North Carolina. The organization builds relationships in communities by providing free spay-neuter, fences, pet supplies, and medical care. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how did you get involved in animal welfare? I personally started work in animal welfare whenever I was living um, where I grew up in rural East Texas and, and was helping an issue that was pretty prevalent there, which is street dogs. Even though it was a rural area that there were a lot of dogs that you would see on the side of the road that for a variety of different reasons didn't have homes. And so that was sort of the, the beginning of being in that world for me. And then whenever I moved to North Carolina, there were a lot more opportunities to get involved officially. And so volunteering with, with local groups and my career I guess you could say, started officially when I began my own nonprofit in North Carolina about 10 years ago. And then not long after that, whenever I was hired as the North Carolina state director for the HSUS and somewhat connected to the work that I currently do with Pets for Life, being of service to people in addition to animals, my my interest in social justice really started when I was very young. Were you concerned about people? Did you see things happening that you may, made you want to be able to change the situation that, that people were in in their communities? I did. Where, where I grew up, again, it was very rural in, in East Texas and um, saw a lot of issues with access, not having the ability to obtain services for yourself or for your pets. There's a, a lot of difficulty with the ideas of equality um, in a lot of different ways. And so it was something that was just kind of part of the narrative in the world that I grew up in. And for whatever reason, I remember it from being very, very young, something that I had a concern for and that I saw there was a lot of need for people to, to recognize that there was injustice that was happening around them. You noticed that certain things seemed a bit unfair and that it was it needed to change. Exactly. And then you took that energy and brought it into wellness programs, outreach, and actually the sort of the essence and the bedrock of Pets for Life. I'm so eager to talk about this program with you today. I think I'm going to sort of just jump right into it. Can you tell me a little bit about Pets for Life and how it was started and what the essence of the program really is? Sure. It is really all about connecting people and pets in underserved areas to services and information. And what that means for underserved areas, what we focus on are communities that have high rates of poverty 
and little to no access to to pet wellness services. And not surprisingly, the the areas aren't just underserved on the animal side, but they also are underserved in many different ways for the people. And so we provide free spay-neuter, vaccinations, medical care, supplies, essentially whatever is needed for people and pets to stay together and to live happy, healthy lives. Our approach is unique in that we're, we're very proactive and we utilize sort of the traditional grassroots organizing um, methodology, literally going door to door, street by street to build trust and, and relationships with people who have had either very little interaction with animal welfare providers before, or the interaction they have had has been largely negative or punitive. There's not a community in the United States that doesn't have a segment of it that is underserved. And so it's a a really important issue for us in animal welfare to be aware of, for us to talk about, um, and for us to really start kind of incorporating into our, our missions. And the program right now, we are in 34 markets across the country. Four of those locations are operated directly by the HSUS. So we have our own team and staff that's out in the community every day doing the work. And then in the other 30, we're supported through funders like PetSmart Charities, and we call them our mentorship markets, where we work with local shelters, animal control agencies, spay-neuter clinics, and, and even rescue groups, bringing Pets for Life into their organizational structure and mission. I sort of was trying to think of sort of the analogy we've heard with regards to food, you know, referencing food deserts. Would yes. you kind of reference these maybe spay-neuter or community medicine deserts? We use that comparison all the time, and we call them animal service deserts. And the the parallel is is usually the same in, in every community where food deserts are identified. They are animal service deserts as well. So there are not veterinary clinics that are in those communities. There are not pet supply stores, even big box retailers. And so it's extremely difficult for people to access spay neuter and and just simple things like flea and tick medication or, um, you know, just sort of like preventative care or maybe minor medical issues. It really is just out of reach for people, both geographically, um, but oftentimes financially as well. So those communities where you do have sort of a spay neuter lack of availability for any spay neuter resources, how do you help resolve that issue? So it depends on what is available um, in each of the markets that we work in, and every place is different. And so we we put together a strategy. Some have maybe a, a for-profit veterinarian that we're able to work with that's only a few miles away. In some places, we are working with a provider that's 45 minutes from the community that we serve. And so transportation becomes a, a big part of connecting the people and, and pets with the services. And so we do in the program a lot of transporting dogs and cats to and from their spay-neuter appointments to other medical appointments. In some cases, there are mobile units that that are working in an area, and so we're able to bring them into the community. Um, and even in a few places, we have veterinarians that go out into the community with us. Can you touch upon some of your greatest challenges and greatest successes from the program? I think that one of the 
most prevalent um, most common challenges that we have faced has been really from within our own field, much more so than a challenge from the community side. You know, when we first started Pets for Life and, and having these conversations about the, the issue of, of people and pets in poverty, there are a lot of misconceptions in animal welfare. You know, we have believed for a long time that certain communities or certain segment of pet owners um, were opposed to spay-neuter or, um, you know, that there are cultural differences that would impact someone's decision to spay or neuter their, their cat or dog. And what we have found is that that just isn't true, that it's almost always about access and about affordability. And so I think that challenge was a big one in the beginning and that we still see as we start in each new community is with ourselves and having a very honest conversation about, you know, maybe some of the judgments that we've made and, and how to get past them in order to, to really connect with the people that need the services the most. In the same vein, I think that that's one of our biggest successes is really impacting the entire field and sort of the conversation that's being had on the last frontier, so to speak, of, of people and pets that um, need to be connected to us as the service providers and the people who really hold the information. So I'm just trying to encapsulate this in thinking about, you know, it's not our place to make decisions for others. And so we need to go out and provide information, but not be the actual, come in with our biases to sort of pre-decide what direction someone's going to go in. You can sum it up, I think, with some terminology uses. Um, I'm sure you've heard and have probably used, as have I, um, the term education, you know, that we're, we need to be out educating people, providing education to a community. And that was something that as we began really doing the work and collecting data and seeing the results, they were like, okay, wait a second. You know, education implies that there's an imbalance, that you have a teacher and you have a student. And that's really not at all what we see in the community. It's about information sharing because we have as much to learn as we have to give. And, and I think that that sort of represents what the program is about and what you were just saying, that we're not trying to convince people. We're not trying to strong arm anybody. We really want to share information, make services available in a very easy way for people. And when that happens, the majority of folks make the absolute best decision for their pets. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors. Ready to make a big difference for cats in your community? We've got an exciting opportunity that can jumpstart your efforts. The Community Cats Podcast has launched Community Cats Grants. When you qualify for this innovative program, you'll gain valuable knowledge about how to raise funds for your spay-neuter efforts. Plus, we'll match the funds you raise up to $1,000, doubling your ability to make a difference for cats. Fundraising doesn't have to be scary. We'll be with you every step of the way. Check it out. You can find all of the details on the Community Cats podcast website under our education menu. Let's join forces to make the world a better place for community cats. 
who was the brainchild of the Pets for Life program? Was it you? Was it a group of people? How did it get started? I started with the group Coalition Unchained Dogs um, many years before getting hired by HSUS. And that's where I learned a lot of lessons and where I really had my eyes opened to the reality for so many people who are living and struggling with poverty every day and how that impacts the decisions that they make and what they have available to them as far as options for their pets. And so through that learning, I was able to sort of recognizing other people, um, you know, who had an interest in these issues, who had some experience and knowledge that they could share. And so from there, it really became, you know, a collaboration of how do we make this a, a larger program. And once I started working with the HSUS as the North Carolina State Director, I was able to have a lot more connections and, and a lot more interactions with, with people who could help make it happen. Thank you so much for making this a national program. I mean, it's it's taking a small idea with a small organization and then being able to grow it to be able to help so many different communities across the country. You said the total number was 34. Is that what's currently going on or is that the total number of communities that have been involved with Pets for Life so far? So that's what's currently um, going on and that's very direct and official. So where we either are doing the work ourselves or we've provided the financial support and training for a local group to do it. But it's obviously the the philosophy is is much broader than that. And, and through the Pets for Life Community Outreach Toolkit that we have available for free online, a, just a ton of groups. There's thousands that have taken advantage of that and in some way, whether it's just in pieces or it's that kind of in full with the program, um, really started to utilize these ideas and change how they're delivering services and what they're doing in their community. So we've seen in the last few years just the idea of it, which is what the most important piece is, really taking off of how much need there is. And fortunately, this is an issue that isn't going to be going away anytime soon because the income inequality in our country is is greater than it's ever been. And there are one in six Americans now, and it seems to be increasing every census that's done, are living at or below the federal poverty line. And so, again, you know, any community that anybody listening is working in, there's going to be people and pets that they will probably say, yes, this fits. You know, there's this certain area, certain neighborhood that really needs services and doesn't have them. So in this Pets for Life program, can you touch upon the specific ways that it helps community cats in an area? Yeah, the the program right now, we serve about 50% dogs, 50% cats, um, which surprises a lot of people. For some reason, a lot of folks started thinking that the program was mainly about dogs, and it definitely is not. A large number of those cats are community cats that that we we serve. We work from within the community to identify the people who love and care for the cats and offer free services, just like we do in general, free spay, neuter, medical care. And I think on the surface, we've seen folks think that cats in certain neighborhoods are not cared for or are not connected to people. But what we have found is that 
most are in some way or another, but it takes us engaging with people and having conversations and listening and investing the time to create that trust. And then when we do, you know, there are usually at least one person, oftentimes many, that, you know, are caring for these mainly outdoor cats and varying degrees of of social behavior and and friendliness, but um, that have people who really are looking out for them and love them. It's funny. I keep on thinking about community cats, and I actually am surprised you, you would say people would think there are more dogs for pets. I would think it would be much more on the cat realm than the dog realm, just because I have, over the years, I've often referenced cats being pets of the poor. Yeah. Because I had a statistical reference once that said, as your income levels go up, the number of dogs you have go up. As your income level goes down, the number of cats you have goes up. So there's this inverse relationship, and therefore it provides a much greater impact on your local shelter, on your community in general. So I would have anticipated almost a 60-40 or a 70-30 relationship, but maybe that's because I'm pretty cat-centric. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, but I, but I think that you have an insight in that that probably a lot of people don't. I, I still think there's a, a large segment of just the general public who view community cats as less than a pet. And so maybe that's why a lot of people see dogs as more connected to the people and the cats as being less individual um, and more community. So that might be, but you having the experience and sort of the information that you do, you understand that most of those cats have people. So Amanda, I'm going to ask you what one would think would be a simple question, but maybe it's not so simple. If you saw a stray cat on the street, what would you do? Well, you know, I, I kind of answer that from the perspective of, of Pets for Life and, and what our approach is. And, you know, we obviously see cats that are loose outside all of the time. And the way that we handle it is to start talking to people in the area and finding out the full story of who may know the cat, who is caring for the cat, either individually or potentially multiple people. But if the cat is more independent or part of a colony. And then once we are able to get that information, you know, offer the appropriate services, that's really how we go about it. And sometimes we're able to to gather those details within a couple of minutes. Sometimes it might take us a couple of days and knocking on many doors or using folks that we know to tell others that we're not there to get them into trouble and, and they can trust us. But that's what we work hard um, to make sure that we are doing, that we exhaust every possible option to identify the, the humans that are involved and then start talking to people and saying, this is what we have to offer. You know, does the cat need to be spayed? You know, is there an issue with a medical condition that that we can help with? Sometimes food is, is really, really helpful. And then just sharing information on what the benefits are to different services. And a lot of the communities we work in, the majority of animals are not spayed or neutered, less than 10% actually nationwide, which is pretty staggering in underserved areas. And so folks have never had an altered pet before. And so they don't always know what that means, or um, they might have misconceptions about it, or with cats specifically, how we utilize the traps and what the process is. And, you know, people have questions on 
does it hurt them? You know, how, when do they come back? So really just talking to people and, and kind of shining a light on, on what we're able to, to do and how we're able to help and be of service. And in the rare case, if it's a, a, a true stray to us, that means, you know, no connection to a person, then we notified the groups who handle those issues. So as pets for life, we are not there to, to trap and remove or, or anything of that nature. So whether it's animal services or a local rescue group, group that's when we use our relationships and connections and, and let others get involved. Sounds great. Amanda, if people are interested in finding out more about Pets for Life, you'd mentioned that handbook earlier, which we'll try and get a link for our show notes today. How can they find you to find out more about that or to be part of the mentoring program? So everything can be connected to from our main webpage, which is humanesociety.org backslash pets for life. There's a link to the community outreach toolkit from there. There's a link to information on mentorship and how to get signed up to be notified when the grant process is open. So from that main page, there's all sorts of, of information that people can get access to and, and learn and read more if they would like. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? You know, I think just sort of reiterating what we've talked about, that in the Pets for Life work and and very much from from what we've learned, we believe that it's important to and have seen success in treating cats as part of the overall community and not ostracizing the issue or approaching people any differently than we do on other issues. And we recognize, of course, there are logistical nuances to each situation and each community, but the philosophy really is always the same is to engage people with respect and, and understanding and be of service in, in the most comprehensive way we can with emphasizing the resources and, and using our resources to keep people and pets together. And that, that very much includes community cats. Amanda, thank you again for agreeing to be a guest on my show. And I hope we'll have you on in the future. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to a Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 